Well, folks, welcome to one more edition of Politics and Red. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. ¿Dónde están todos? Where are all our peeps? Well, at least we've got AVQ in the house with Michael Rudnan. We also have Melanie Keaton. How are you doing, Melanie? From España. We also have Yvette Avery Herod. Good afternoon, PDR Posse, she says. And our reliable Bridge MCP. Bridge, you're going to see in one of the articles that I'm quoting that the person spoke about what the British Empire pretty much did to the Irish. I guess it had to do with the potato famine or the big famine out there in Ireland as well. So you are reaching folks. You are reaching folks. You are reaching folks. Anyhow, we have a great interview for you today with El Señor uh, Tom Hartman. But before we get started, let's go ahead and talk about Rudnan's 538 article, which says 60% of Americans will have an election denier on the ballot this fall. There are a lot of election deniers on the ballot. Out of 540 total Republican nominees running for office, we found 199 who fully denied the legitimacy of the 2020 election. These candidates either clearly stated that the election was stolen from Trump or took legal action to overturn the results, such as waiting, whoops, such as voting not to certify election results or joining lawsuits that sought to overturn the election. Only 74 Republican nominees have fully accepted the results of the 2020 election. In the House, many of these election deniers took look to win using the latest data from the 538-2022 midterm election forecast. We can see that 118 election deniers have at least a 95% chance of winning. Several additional candidates who have denied the election are in competitive races. Sometimes one, I wonder... If our nation will survive a fascist takeover of our government after a sufficient fraction of these conspiracy nutters get elected, Democrats had a chance to disqualify all those who planned, incited, and participated in January 6th election under 14th Amendment challenges and failed to do so. The Department of Justice could have changed, charged them with seditious conspiracy, but similar failed to do so. I have checked, and even my own home state of New York has a couple of representatives among those Numbers who are likely to win seats. Nicole, look, they only win the seats if we don't go ahead and just kick some butt. I think we're going to have a lot of big surprises. Surprises because a lot of folks are keeping their mouth shut because they know this is a whole lot of crap going on. Nicole Miloatakis, uh, New York's 11th denial status, fully denied position, uh, a position source, congressional roll call. Chance of winning 93 in 100. Ellis M. Stefanik, New York, I know her. 20, she's a, isn't she the leader? 21st, denial status, fully denied. Position source, congressional roll call. Chance of winning 99 in 100. Egberto, looking at this horror showing up in your state of Texas, I really worry about our nation. So many conspiracy nutters in Congress. It really is depressing, but probably more so for you because one of those might... Be your representative. Mine didn't quite deny it, but he didn't quite call it out either. Anyhow, I'm not going to read on anymore because you guys, they get everybody gets the picture. You guys can read it on your own. We also have Alistair Waters in the house. Uh, British MCP welcomes Alistair and, and, and Melanie. Let's see what else we got here. Lee Grant is in the house. He says, yeah, Norman Reynolds is in the house. He says, hey. And uh, part of it, if I forgot anybody so far, uh, Yvette says, keep bringing the knowledge. Keep bringing the knowledge. All right, folks, today we got ourselves the one and only, you know, my buddy Tom Hartman is with us. Let's take 
let's go over. Well, let's see before. Lee Grant says, I gather in the Manchin world, Manichaean world, progressive dialogue, you are either an election denier or an election supporter. Can one be a semi-denier? No, we only want folks who tell the truth. Nada más los que digan la verdad. So here we go with Tom Hartman. Welcome to Politics and Radam. Egberto Willis, your host. We are here today with a special guest, Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman is a four-time winner of the Project Censored Award, a New York Times bestselling author of 33 books. We know it's more than that now. And America's number one progressive talk show radio host. His show is syndicated on local for-profit and non-profit stations and broadcast nationwide and worldwide. It is also simulcast on television into nearly 60 million homes on Free Speech TV, among many others, as well as the Pacifica Network and KPFT 90.1 FM Houston. Tom Hartman, welcome to Politics Unread. How are you doing today, my friend? Egberto, it is always so nice to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, look, we are here to discuss a very important book, and that is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America, and How to Restore Its Greatness. Um, look, especially in these times, it's needed. What got you, what made you write the book, Tom? Well, I, I, this is actually a book I've been wanting to write for years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this, this, uh, hidden history series is doing well. And the publisher reached out and said, uh, you know, you can you add another book to this. And I was like, yeah, I want to do this, you know, mm -hmm. it's a, and uh, I, re I really think that we are at this major hinge point in history, this turning point for America. We've had um, a 40-year neoliberal experiment and uh, that some people refer to as Reaganism or trickle-down economics or supply-side economics or whatever you want to call it. It's really called neoliberal economics. And it is failing terribly. It's gutted the American middle class, which has gone from 65% of us to 45% of us in fewer than 30 years. It's, uh, it, it has uh, provided for the massive concentration of wealth at the top. We have three American men who are worth more than the entire bottom half of America. Um, it Imagine has, that. yeah, it has, uh, you know, expanded poverty. Homelessness is at an all time high. Uh, I mean, it's just the, the the wreckage of neoliberalism is all around us. And of course, the Republican Party still 100 percent clings to it. And there's there's no shortage of Democrats who are still pushing the neoliberal song and dance. And so I wanted to publish a book that just essentially exposed it. And it starts in the 1930s with the first meetings in, in Paris and then in Switzerland, where they came up with this idea and leads all the way to today. You know, that's that's something that I learned. You know, I, I remember um, that book, uh, Capitalism Hits, not Capitalism Hits, that's, that's the other guy. Um, that book that was put out by the lady, I can't remember her name right now, uh, where she spoke about Chile and and Argentina. Like shock Doctrine. Shock Doctrine. That's the, the I, I read that book, Shock Doctrine. But even in reading that book, I didn't realize, I mean, I, I, I almost fixated on Ronald Reagan, just like you initially said there, until I kind of read the beginning of your book where you actually state that there were a group of economists sitting down creating this market-based system as if this there was some mythical market that could solve all the problems based on uh, given that their, their their theory is that oh there are so many different variables in the market we couldn't have anything at all centralized so we just let the market dictate everything i didn't know that that actually occurred before the reagan administration etc 
Yeah, no, the the intellectual forefathers, I mean, and this is really a classic example of, you know, the old saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. Um, uh, Hayek, uh, Mises, and Friedman, among mm-hmm. others, there was a group of about 30. Um, but these these guys were the shakers and the movers and the principal evangelists. Got together first in Paris in the, in the late 30s and mm-hmm. then in, in Switzerland uh, around the end of World War II. And the question that they were grappling with, um, they had just seen Russia go uh, communist and they had seen both Italy, Germany and Spain go fascist. And so the question was, how can you make democracies, you know, modern Western democracies resilient enough that they will neither go communist nor go fascist? How do you how do you protect uh, democracy? And, you know, Abraham Maslow, the famous psychologist, uh, is often quoted as saying, you know, when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem in the world looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, these guys are economists. And so they figured the answer to fixing democracy is economic. And their point, and it makes sense. I mean, you know, it, 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 it turns out it doesn't, not, doesn't work. But their point was at every given moment, I mean, literally during the time of this sentence, um, there's probably going to be a million decisions made in the marketplace, uh, probably just in my state of Oregon, you know, mm-hmm. people choosing which orange juice to buy, which pair of pants to buy, which store to shop at, where to buy their gas. I mean, you know, we're, there's literally millions, billions of decisions being made in the marketplace every minute of every day. And their point was, that is a data set that represents basically an intelligence or a data that no bureaucrat, no government official, and no politician could ever hope to replicate um, in terms of having data for decision-making. And therefore, we should simply let the market basically run everything, Make let the market run all the decisions. The only functions of government should be police and fire, and and maybe not even fire. Fire should be privatized too, but police and the, and the army, and, and run a court system to, to adjudicate disputes, and everything else will just take care of itself. And that all the things that governments do that are that they consider to be interference in the market or causing distortions in the marketplace, whether it was licensure, Milton Friedman argued against licensing doctors. Um, <laughs> weirdly enough, it distorts the marketplace. Uh, or whether it is, uh, you know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, food stamps, uh, housing support, you know, the the social safety net or whether it's uh, uh, states and federal government paying the tuition for college, whatever it may be, all of those things. I mean, they weren't so crazed and ideological that they called them communism or socialism the way Republicans do. But what they said was these are interference. These all these things interfere in the normal market, in the normal functioning of the marketplace. And therefore, we need to get rid of them all. And, you know, we've tried this neoliberal experiment now in Chile. We've tried it in Russia. We've tried it in Iraq. and We've tried it in the United States. It's failed in every one of those places. And in fact, what it what it points out, what it proves is what I've been saying for years and years. And that is that the resting state of capitalism is what Charles Dickens described in his novels. You've got, you know, a one percent that's the very rich, the, the royal family and the landowners. You've got a two or three percent that is the middle class. That was Scrooge in Christmas. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a small businessman. He owned a little tiny business that had two employees, him and Bob Cratchit. And then you've got 95 percent of the population is literally the working poor and more than three quarters of them live their entire lives in debt. That's the resting state of capitalism. That's the norm of unregulated capitalism. That's the history of 500 years of Europe and, and countries all around the world, frankly, that have tried capitalist systems, laissez-faire capitalist systems. Now, and- look, Tom, 
I'm an engineer. Okay. All I do, well, before I did this was all numbers. And it's, you know, what you just said is a mathematical formula, right? In other words, if you have a sect that can grow at a higher percentage than the majority, then eventually in a system that is closed, then eventually that set takes it all. It's the, it's the derivative. I mean, it's, it's, it, this is all math, right? So it's not hard for somebody like me to understand exactly what you just said. What concerns me is maybe something that you said, and you said that the, sometimes the path to hell is paved with good intentions. And I sit down and wonder how these guys are economists and they also know numbers. And yes, it is true that there are very various variables. There you know, too many variables for us to create other than a supercomputer to solve. Granted, agreed. But there are certain basics that one should say, we created the economy. We created a society. Why is it that we cannot understand that we can set the parameters loosely or more definitely and have that market works around that? As an example, um, right. we talk right. about healthcare. As an example, we talk about healthcare. Why couldn't they have said, well, that the healthcare, we'll have that bifurcated economy where healthcare is protected because hell, even the market system needs people that are healthy. That's, yeah. just, that's just one example. Well, it, it, the, that that Charles Dickens state of capitalism, which, by the way, existed in the United States in the in the census of 1900, mm-hmm. there were only about five percent of Americans that were what we would today call middle class. The mm-hmm. average family income in today's dollars was forty three hundred dollars a year. Wow. Most of America was living in deep poverty in 1900. So it really wasn't until Franklin Roosevelt started really aggressively regulating capitalism that and that he did so in a way that allowed a middle class to emerge and America's middle class you know we hit we hit 65% of Americans being in the middle class in 1980 when Reagan came into office and or 81 and that had never before happened in the history of the world because it was regulating capitalism and the analogy that i draw to you know for your healthcare thing is 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 football you know, you could say, oh, yeah, let's apply laissez-faire theory to football. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, each team can have as many people as they want on the field. Whichever team gives the largest contribution to the NFL gets uh, an extra player. Uh, you know, you can grab face masks. You can, you know, I mean, you, you just kind of make up your own rules as you go along, as long as you don't kill anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, eventually what would happen is the team with the, with the, the you know, the, pays the biggest bribes to the NFL to get extra players on the field or the team that is most willing to, to basically push the envelope into what might be arguably unethical at the very least is going to be the team that ends up with everything. Just like, you know, the, as, you know, Honoré de Belzac said, you know, that behind every great fortune is a great crime. No, um, no kidding. Know. Yes. No, absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. You know, today, in fact, on my show, and this isn't a crime though, on my show, I was pointing out because I went to the um, I went to the drugstore today to get the penicillin for my teeth, and um, the, I was talking about healthcare system in Canada versus here, and the guy from Sudan who uh, all his relatives are doctors in either Sudan, uh, 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 Canada, or America. You could see that he actually got the capitalism bug in him. Because mm-hmm. when I said I wouldn't have had to go on through this crap that I went through to get penicillin over there, he said, "Yeah, that's true, but there are con- goods and cons." He says the one thing that money does is it brings innovation, 
And then I stopped him and I said, what did Bezos invent? What did any one of these guys invent? Nothing, right? They paid somebody a penny on the dollar to create something. Those people created it and they profited. Please tell me how is it that innovation came from profit? It seems to me like the person who innovated didn't make the profit. Your thoughts? Thomas Edison was dirt poor when he started out, as was George Washington, uh, Westinghouse. Mm, there you go. I mean, you know, it's uh, John Rockefeller was not born into great wealth, uh, but he was he was a very effective predator. Right. <laughs> so, no, that's that's nonsense. I mean, that's 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 like an Internet meme or something. You know, uh, you don't need great wealth to, to have innovation and you don't need predatory capitalism to have innovation. Innovation is the result of people wanting something better than they have right now. And that's an absolutely universal thing. And some people will have these skills to apply that in an engineering context. Other people, they'll come up with a new cooking recipe. Other people will develop new art. Um, you know, uh, there's a million ways to innovate. None of them, in my opinion, depend on a, on a so-called free market. It's funny that these myths, though, kind of cauterize into people's minds and you just hear them. You hear the poorest person regurgitating that nonsense constantly. Oh, we have to protect this capitalist structure because innovation will end. You know, there's something that's quite interesting, Tom. You uh, you spoke about Milton Friedman, and I, I think you kind of gave a little bit of, uh, maybe a little bit of past the guys. I, I thought there was a special evil to Milton Friedman. I don't know if you remember in the 1970s when Milton Friedman had something to say with regards to, um, you, you executives owe absolutely nothing to the, to the people, to society. Your sole responsibility are to the shareholders. Don't you think that is the type of premise that all of this is based on and inflect quite a bit of your book? Yeah, Friedman, you know, being a neoliberal, <laughs> believed that, you know, capital should always seek capital. It should do whatever ne is necessary to to maximize capital, you know, as long as you're not harming others. But his definition of harm was fairly loose. He was a big advocate of General Pinochet, who was taking <laughs> helicopters and throwing them in the ocean when they disagreed with him um, and torturing them in the national arena and, and killing them and burying their bodies there. So, um, you know, Friedman is one of the more amoral of the bunch, in my opinion. Um, you know, I think Hayek and, and Mises, uh, in particular Mises, uh, probably uh, were more uh, utopians and Friedman was more of a sellout. Yeah, I mean, he started out as a hustler for the real estate industry. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. 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 So. Now, interestingly, um, we you, you, I, you did a contrast between Bush and Obama. Um, explain that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested in it. When I say that, I mean, it's like uh, Bush was a deep neoliberal and somehow Obama saved us. No, I, I, I'm not, I'm not sure what you're talking well, about. I, I, I think, I think what you mean is when you said that, uh, uh, what is it that you call it? Obama rescues neoliberalism from itself. Oh, in, in, um, is that in the book? Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. And I think the, I, I know where you're coming from. I just wanted it to be yeah, you saying it. My yeah. point is that, that, you know, Bush, well, actually it was Clinton, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, in 99, um, blowing up Glass-Steagall, who deregulated the banks. Oh, so it was Graham's idea. The Republicans were pushing the idea. Um, that deregulation of the banks crashed the, the, the economy in the United States and around the world in 2008 on Bush's watch. And then Obama comes in and says, OK, well, we're going to we're going to put some fingers in the dike. We're going to we're going to fix things a little bit. But Obama was a neoliberal also. 
Yeah, um, definitely. Obamacare is just, you know, another way of shoveling taxpayer dollars into the pockets of giant corporations. And I, I, I think what I was trying to say that you meant was, uh, well, I, that, I, that I got out of it was that he allowed it to sort of survive by putting some patches in there yeah. so that, you know, some, some sort of survivability there. Right. And then and then uh, Trump came in and took out the patches and surprise, surprise, we've got even more wealth inequality and more problems, which is expected. Now, I, I spoke to um, Richard Wolf a few weeks ago and because I really got upset at um, inflation uh, and and, you know, I, I have this this theory that I put out there and I want actually I would like to hear your comments on this. Whereas I said uh, the, the Russian war really should have created a glut. And I actually made mention on this on um, on Muslim TV, where I think it's proven now um, Russia, the, the, the war is in Ukraine, not Russia. And Russia still has quite a bit of oil being exported, being bought at discount from China and India, which means the oil that China and India have been purchasing on the markets, they're purchasing less oil off the markets. And as such, where the hell is this shortage? We also added another million barrels of oil from our reserves for, per day into it. And suddenly, oh, by the way, while the prices reached in, um, in Texas, five something, I think in California, six something, there was never, ever a glut or never, ever a, uh, a shortage of gasoline, even though we only dropped by 2%. What what does those numbers tell you? Well, there's there's two things going on. The first is that during the pandemic in 2020, when when nobody was flying and in, and the sky was free of airplanes, the price of oil collapsed to about thirty dollars a barrel. And right. Had uh, small oil operations all over the uh, the Texas, the Permian Basin, went under Oklahoma, you know that whole area, who were running on debt and they were and they were going bankrupt left and right. And a lot of them were good friends with, you know, right wing billionaires who had a lot of influence with Donald Trump. And so they went to Trump and they said, you got to save us. And so Trump sends Jared Kushner over to Saudi Arabia and he negotiates this deal with Mohammed bin Salman, where they're going to drop production um, by 2.2 or 2.4 million barrels a day. Saudi Arabia did to try to support the price. Mm -hmm. of oil. He did and they did. And the price of oil went up to around 40, 50 bucks a barrel. And the, the oil and the Texas guys were no longer going bankrupt and everybody was happy. So then Biden comes into office and he reaches out to Saudi Arabia and says, how about restoring those those cuts that you did for Bush or for Trump? rather?" And uh, Mohammed bin Salman is like, uh, you've been trash talking me. Screw you. And to this day, they haven't restored that production. There's been a very slight increase in production on the order of a couple hundred thousand barrels a day. Um, but, you know, that happened. Um, I, I do think, though, that the uh, that the price of oil went or the price of gasoline rather, and the price of oil for that matter, mm -hmm. went up as high as it did and as far as it did, in part in response to the war in Ukraine, uh, not because there was an actual shortage, but because people were anticipating it. You know, futures markets tend to drive markets and futures markets are, are driven by speculation. Mm -hmm. um, so you had that and that's why it's going back down again. And also, I think it's going back down again because the president and a lot of economists, you know, the Roger Robert Reiches and the and the uh, um, uh, what's his name? Paul. Uh, uh, Paul Krugman. Krugman, yeah, are, are, you know, we're just saying out loud. These guys are just ripping us off and mm -hmm. there, there's no shortage of proof of it. And then, you know, the quarterly results came out at the end of the last quarter 
And ExxonMobil and Shell had had the best quarters, I believe, in the history of the In the company. history. Yeah. And, that and is- at that point, I think they, they thought, okay, if we keep doing this, they're going to hit us with a windfall profits tax, which, by the way, five European countries have already done. Right. And, and we don't want that windfall profits tax to, to spread. So we'll stop ripping people off. We'll let, you know, we'll let the price go down to three or four bucks a, a gallon. We can still make good money. And so I think that a large part of that explosion in gas prices that lasted about three or four months was artificial. You know, it price was just in power. It was price gouging. Yeah, it yeah, was it, monopoly based price gouging. You know, it's it's you know, like I said, when this started to happen, I went and I got um, uh, Dr. Richard Wolf right away, because one of the things that I wanted to uh, point out is that. Those with price and power, and and I think a lot of this is implied in in your book as well. Price and power is what really drives costs. A lot of times, it has less to do with scarcity than it does with with again price and power. Yeah, well, we have an economy in the United States where there is literally not a single consequential industry left that is not dominated more than eighty percent by fewer than five companies. Well, operate as cartels. So you know, competition is largely dead in the United States. So prices, you know, for example, in Europe, you know, you can get you know hundred, two hundred megabyte uh, uh, internet up and down service plus a cell phone for thirty bucks a month. Wow. Just just the internet. 18 to $20 a month. Here in the United States, that internet is 60 or $70 a month, and the cell phone is 40, 50, whatever the market will bear. And that's the key. Um, they're not pricing, the pricing of most products in the United States, whether it's airfares, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, pick, pick your, pick your uh, poison, as it were. There's very few things that are actually subject to competitive price pressures that hold prices down. It's all how much are willing, how much, be, how much can we charge before people stop buying or start screaming? And that's why the average American, and I pointed this out in the hidden history of monopoly uh, and that you and I talked about. Yeah. That's why the average American spends $5,000 a year more than the average Canadian or the average European on a whole variety of things. I call it a monopoly tax, but you know, your internet, your, your cell phone, your, you know, pretty much everything you're uh-huh. buying. Because there is no competition in the United States. Anyway. Even though the effective tax, again, I said the effective tax rate is not all that different from those that offer good socialized medicine and much more. Now, Tom, chapter 15, privatizing of the commons. One of the, and I, I, I have some thoughts about that, but tell me a little bit about that. Well, this is one of the big the, you know, the, one of the things that uh, neoliberal economists and politicians just absolutely love. It's why Joe Manchin got uh, slipped into both the uh, uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, the right. Reduction Act, a provision that every single penny that gets spent has to go through the hands of a for-profit corporation. And that is this idea, this neoliberal idea that government can't do anything right. And even when government spends tax money, they should spend it through private for-profit corporations so that somebody can make a buck off it because that'll enhance the private economy and the private economy is the ultimate god it's the ultimate good it's the thing that makes everything wonderful and so these private public partnerships that uh, people like josh gottheimer you know the the neoliberals Mm -hmm. and the democratic party and the entire republican party are so in love with um you know that's what they are and and it's just another way of ripping off the american public frankly and you know, trying to take the, the buy, I mean, get the land as well. But I, I think I, I think it's that statement that you made. It's important um, about trying to that the first dollar has to be the first tax dollar has to be spent by private corporations. I think it's important for us to also you know call things the way they are. Profit when government spends with uh, prop for profit companies, 
uh, profits become an expense. And That's unless your waste, if you want to call government wasteful, unless said waste is equivalent to the profit plus, might as well have the waste, huh? Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's inherently wasteful. And half of our defense budget is now running through the hands of private corporations. We even have, you know, I mean, it, it, it's this is how insane it is. Um, when my dad was in the Army during World War II, you know, you had kitchen duty, KP duty, right? And you'd peel the potatoes and make the meal, and you were a soldier. And if the base got overrun, you'd pick up your gun and go shoot at the bad guys. Yep. Well, you know, they got this brilliant idea when we invaded, invaded Afghanistan. George Bush, being a neoliberal, said, well, we need to privatize everything except combat. And they didn't. Mm -hmm. They even privatized large chunks of combat, but they did it on the rubric of security. But he said, let's let's privatize everything except combat. And we'll just have the low paid people get the ones who be the ones who get shot. And so they hired these cooks for one hundred thousand dollars a year. And then, you know, Halliburton or whatever company it was tacked another 30 percent on top. And mm -hmm. so one hundred and thirty thousand dollars a year, we're paying people to be cooks. The base gets overrun. Then you got to have a soldier come protect the cook. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's crazy, it's literally nuts. Yeah, it, it is funny because I have a friend. He was calling me from Iraq while bombs were falling. And then he would tell me stories about going to the mess hall with the card that every time they swipe, it costs 15 bucks or something like that for the meal that they're eating. It, it was a complete waste. And then they they hired a lot of folks that make very little money, you know, folks from India, Pakistan, and, and these other these other places. Now, before I, I, I want to talk a little bit about how we restore the middle class, but I want to take this out of order because Hamilton's 11-step plan worked for 188 years. Really? That's true. That's true. Um, and the Tudor plan worked for 200 years before that in England, and, and the Dutch equivalent of it, I never was able to find that there was a name for it, but the Dutch really figured this out about 100 years before that, um, back in the 1400s. And uh, so here's the story. Uh, when George Washington was uh, elected president, he wanted to be sworn in wearing American clothing, American-made clothing. The British had uh, had a monopoly on clothing through the East India Company, and they had outlawed American-made clothing. But there was this one guy, Daniel Hinsdale, who had a little shop in, in Connecticut, uh, who was, you know, under, underground manufacturing clothes. And so Washington had General Knox to carry his measurements to Connecticut. And Hinsdale brought back a nice brown American-made suit that Washington wore for his inauguration. He wore British black for the famous painting, but, but for his inauguration, he wore an American-made suit. And then when he became president, he turned to his, his secretary of the treasury, Alexander Hamilton, and said, We've got to figure out how to turn America into a great industrial power like the United Kingdom is. We will not have a national security until we do. Um, there are some industries that we obviously must have. We must be able to man manufacture munitions, for example, and things like that for our military. But beyond that, we, we should be making everything here. So Hamilton did a deep dive into this, and he discovered the Tudor plan, the King Henry VII's Tudor plan from the 1500s. When Henry became president, or became king, rather, um, England was dirt poor. I mean, dirt poor, uh, deeply in poverty. Uh, the roads were all mud roads. The uh, people lived in thatched hutch, huts. Um, you know, it was it, the, the major export of England was raw wool. And so the plan that uh, Henry VII put into place was that all uh, all imports of finished goods, uh, you know, whether it was a sword, 
or a stove or, or you know, any kind of machinery, whatever it may be, all imports of finished goods had really high taxes on them, tariffs, import tariffs, to mm. discourage the importation of manufactured goods and encourage the manufacture. The Locally. Right. And then he gave grants to companies that looked like they had the potential to start factories and build things locally. Um, he gave not just zero tariffs on exports, but actually export supports. In other words, a, a, a tax credit to companies that exported things, again, to expand the market so that the factories could get bigger and more powerful and, 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 and grow. And, and the bottom line was that it turned England in, in two generations from the literally the poorest country in Europe to the wealthiest country in Europe. And so Hamilton took that and put it together as an 11 point plan um, and presented it to Congress in 1791. And by 1793, Congress had adopted most of it. And we had these tariffs that ran from, you know, 20 percent up to 60 percent. The average was around 40 percent from the founding of the republic or from 1793 up until Reagan came into office. In fact, our tariffs were such a significant source of income to the United States that the entire federal government's budget was paid for by tariffs up until the Civil War. Wow. Civil War until the end of World War One, two-thirds of the federal government's budget was paid for by tariffs. And what that did is it kept all the manufacturing in the United States, plus we exported things all over the world. Um, there was a discount on the import of raw materials, a high price on the export of finished goods. Um, so you know, which, by the way, I, I was, I, you know, I lived in China in 1988 for a while, and they were having this debate in China at that time about whether or not they should follow Russia and and Chile and, and uh, uh, Iraq. It wasn't at that time, but uh, Russia and Chile into this neoliberal experiment or whether China should adopt uh, Alexander Hamilton's American plan, which is everybody what everybody called it. It was mm -hmm. Hamilton itself called it the American plan. So in the 80s, in the late 80s, as we were abandoning the American plan and the Reagan administration was negotiating NAFTA and negotiated the, the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, it became the World Trade Organization. As we were embracing neoliberalism, China fully embraced the Alexander Hamilton the Tudor, yeah. plan. Yeah, the, the old Tudor plan. And guess what? Here we are 30 years later. And uh, 35 years later, more or less, and China this this year or next year will become the largest economy, economy. in the world. China's Chinese middle class uh, numerically is larger than the entire population of the United States. And it's because our manufacturing is being done there. And they're doing all the work. Right. Adam Smith pointed this out in Wealth of Nations. If you have a tree limb laying on the ground, it has no intrinsic value to the nation. But if you apply human labor to it, if you carve it into an axe handle, it mm. now has value and it has a value that will last for generations. And that value becomes part of the wealth of the nation. The only way wealth is created is not by a service economy. If you wash my car and I mow your lawn and we pay each other for that, there's no wealth created. Right. There's money moving around. Mm -hmm. But a service economy is almost an oxymoron. It does not create wealth unless it's the, the a very narrow range of services, like a surgeon who can put you back together so you can be continue to, continue to be productive. Right. And large service economies don't create wealth. Manufacturing creates wealth. Adam Smith laid this out in 1776. It was the principle on which Alexander Hamilton, one of them, on which he based the, the, the American plan. And and it wasn't rejected in the United States until Reagan came along. We still have 22,000 categories of products uh, in, uh, in that you can read on the website of the Commerce Department that have tariffs attached to. Them. Yeah, I, I had tariffs. to. 
I had to read that in the days. Yeah. 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 And, the, and the tariffs, you know, in the Reagan era, before the Reagan era, those tariffs were 10, 15, 20, 30, 35, 40%, depending on the goods, those goods that had to do with the national defense. Sometimes they were hundred percent tariffs. Um, now they're all like, you know, non-existent. There's zero, 1%, 2% at the most. And I mean, you know, Trump threw a couple of tariffs on a few things, but it was a joke. And so we have no national industrial policy. And what what I end this book with, you know, the hidden history of neoliberalism is a call to return to the Hamilton plan, which worked so well for us and, and has worked so well for China and to abandon neoliberalism, um, because if we don't, we're going to end up like Russia. Russia is the perfect example of what happens with neoliberalism. It, it's funny that you said that because just uh, uh, yesterday, actually, I think it was yesterday in a program, we actually said that Russia is a, the, the perfect instantiation of unfettered capitalism and where you actually end up with it. And, you know, they're, they're doing a great job of it. So you do think you, you kind of jumped the gun on me right there, Tom, but let me just go ahead and say, so you do think that we do have the we still have the power to rebuild the middle class by just abandoning neoliberalism. Don't you think we also have to uh, create a, a a better bifurcated economy? Well, the two the two are you know you can't do one without the other. If you abandon neoliberalism, what you're what you're really abandoning is laissez-faire capitalism. You're right. abandoning unregulated capitalism. So then the question becomes: Okay, if we're going to regulate capitalism, how are we going to do it? Just like you know the NFL. Okay, if we're going to regulate football, how do we do it? Do we do it so that one team always wins, or do we do it so that the game is fun and everybody can play and everybody wins? You know, eventually, you know that, that it's interesting. And uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt showed us the way. Um, you know, he, like I said, he built the middle class. There was no middle class in America before Roosevelt, and 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 and, and Truman and Eisenhower. Eisenhower wasn't a neoliberal. He was he was right there with I. You know, and he was a Republican. Mm -hmm. When he ran for re-election in '56, he bragged about how many people he had joined unions. That was his main thing. That's why my dad was voting for him, union guy. You know, and and so you know what we need to do is we need to go back to to strengthening and protecting unions and union rights. We need to do away with Taft Hartley and the so-called right to work for less programs. We need to re-regulate financial institutions. We need to break up the giant monopolies. Those laws are still in place. In 1983, Reagan directed the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission to stop enforcing the antitrust laws. We need to start enforcing them again and break up some of these giants. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's all stuff that we've done in the past, and it works real well. And it's all stuff that, frankly, every country in Europe except England is doing right now. And, and, and look know, at where England is right now with their economy compared to others. Yeah, right. I mean, the whole neoliberal thing started there two years before it started here. It started in 78 with Maggie Thatcher. Maggie Thatcher, yeah. It, so. it is amazing. Well, well, Tom, before we end here real real, real quickly, um, uh, what's your expectation for 2022? I'll tell you mine first. I actually think we're going to get the surprise of our life in 2022. I think we hold everything. I agree. I agree. Oh, okay. I think it's going to be an absolute blowout. I, you know, and I, I try not to say it too often because I don't want to jinx it, you know, knock wood. I want to look, I want to speak it. I want to say it because I tell you, um, I, I think, you know, when you remember Obama used to talk a lot about the fever breaking, I wish he broke a few more, but I actually, I'm starting to feel, including with my right wing listeners, a change a coming. And I, I, I think if the Democrats don't screw it up and they could always do that, 
Yes, never underestimate their. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if they don't screw it up, it's in their hands to take it, and I think take it big. Because first of all, women are going crazy, and uh, when it comes to the economy, there are so many different narratives that are out there for us. Use. Tom, give you know the last question I always ask: What should I've asked you that I didn't? I I don't know. <laughs> if I if I hear I don't know from as usual. Egberto, excuse me. Hey, well, let me tell let me tell you something, Tom. I really appreciate you uh, spending the time to talk about your your book, folks. Don't forget, go out and get that book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism. It's a big word, but it's it's well defined by the one and only Tom Hartman, the hidden history of neoliberalism, how Reaganism gutted America and how to restore its greatness. But before I tell you guys, my, my right wing brothers and sisters, you have got to read the book. Don't just say see neoliberal and panic. Read the damn book. Tom Hartman. Uh, author of The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reagan Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. Thank you so kindly. And by the way, also the head of the Tom Hartman Show every day on uh, on Free Speech TV, every day on just about every network, including KPFT. You got to check the guy out. Tom Hartman, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics and Right. Egberto, it is always such an honor and a pleasure to hang out with you and talk with you, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. All right, guys. First of all, before I get busy, I want to thank a few people. I want to thank Richard W. Richard W., thank you so kindly for your super chat. Richard W. says, uh, government subsidies since 1793. Thank you, Alexander Alamilton, LOL. And when we had that power failure a few ago, um, that was when again, uh, when we had that power failure a few weeks ago, I forgot to thank Bridge MCP for her super chat. So I have that up on the screen as well. Thank you guys so kindly for all that you do to ensure that we can continue doing politics done right. Look, we cannot do this without you. I hope you enjoy Tom Hartman. Before we go, I think it's time for me to do my ask. Politics done right depends on you to keep doing what we do. What do we do? We make sure to keep, number one, the internet seeded with blogs and information to counter the right and to present what progressives represent for the benefit of us all to everybody so that it's not misread, misled by any other entity. We make sure and populate that internet with blogs, with videos, with all these other things to make sure that we are informed and to counter everything that you normally hear that, that are lying at the right. We also make sure to create articles in, in magazines, articles in newspapers all around the country to ensure, again, that our message gets out there. Last but not least, we also write books. As you see it, Class Warfare, The Only Resort to Right-Wing Doom, How to Make America Utopia, are two of the many books that I've written on these issues. So please support us in one of many ways. Numero uno, you can support us at PayPal, either one time or monthly. Go to politicsdoneright.com slash PayPal. You can support us on Patreon. That is politicsdoneright.com slash Patreon. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can support us by becoming a part of our YouTube channel, going to politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube, or you can support us in many other forms that you can find at 
politicsdoneright.com slash support. Be sure to visit our store, politicsdoneright.com slash store, and get our books at politicsdoneright.com slash books. Politics Done Right depends on you to keep doing what... Absolutely so, folks. So thank you. Yes, Yvette. Yes, Yvette. Thank you so kindly for posting those stars. And if anybody wants to post stars, they can post stars as well. Uh, if you need to know exactly how to do it, ask Bridge MCP or ask Yvette Avery Herod or ask El Senor Rodnan. They have all been sending stars. Anyhow, folks, continuing with the program. Continuando con el programa, I have been very upset about, um, very upset actually, about um, the coverage that we're getting today. So here's my thoughts. King Charles just gave his speech and you know he's talking about the service of uh, Queen Elizabeth II. First of all, I do want to give from the human side condolences anytime one loses a family member. It's hurtful. We love our family. We love our relatives. We love people. So in the human side, we feel for the death of Queen Elizabeth II. That said, the overarching coverage, the overarching accolades that we are given the monarchy and the pomp and circumstances, as I continuously say, it's unwarranted and undeserved and to see grown folk act like this over a fairy tale over a monarchy over a monarchy that has caused much disaster throughout uh, different groups around the world including in ireland its close neighbor it drives one crazy but anyhow it's interesting because what really lit me up this morning is this type of of response from grown men and the devaluing of the common man. Check this out. It's just him. It's just him. Camilla, I can't see Camilla in these pictures. It's going to be so many things that we're going to be picking out. Another notable point when you're watching uh, Charles and Camilla now, uh, she's walking behind him. Uh, he's the sovereign. He's the monarch. There is so much to that little segment there. She's walking behind him. You walk behind me. I am the sovereign. I am the monarch. Uh, what, what? How can you even say that and not feel diminished? How can you say that in the year 2022? And, you know, I don't think anybody, first of all, when you hear folks talk about how great and nice a monarch is or how they, your life of service, they've got to. What else are they going to do? What's your other purpose in life? We've gotten over or we should be getting over the monarchy and working as democracies. It's about time, don't you think? And to think that just because you have a bloodline inherently supposed to rule others that you become you continue to be the queen of the commonwealth independent countries and they still have you symbolically as a queen it's one of the most degrading thing especially from countries that one colonized dominated and hurt many people in those countries i think it is sad and you know what this morning one of my favorite writers, uh, her, I subscribe to her writings and 
I just felt a sense of peace in that there was not, I was not one of the few feeling this way, but somebody decided, let me just write about it. And Alison, Alison Gaines at May, at Medium, one of, you know, Medium is a great place, folks. Please go to medium.com and support these different writers by just getting a, is a little membership and you'll see that you, you read unlimited great writers. But anyway, Alison says, why most black people are refusing to mourn Queen Elizabeth too? It's time to decolonize the grieving process. And I love the way she starts. One thing has become painfully clear in the aftermath of Queen Elizabeth II's death is her legacy is complex. Yes, it is. While some will spend the next few weeks praising the longest serving British monarch's reign, black people and other marginalized groups are having a different conversation about the harm of British colonialism. For instance, Irish Twitter reflected on the monarch's role in the Great Irish Famine. While Americans often hear about the famine as a natural phenomenon, Britain actually deprived Ireland of resources and systematically shipped, stripped the Irish of even the least semblance of basic human freedom. Some referred to their efforts as genocide. As Irish people expressed their discontent, they found a new friend in solidarity, Black Twitter. We often hear that Britain is known for a type of polite racism, but that's misleading. The British Empire's role overshadowed the participation of all other Northern European powers in the transatlantic slave trade. And like America, Britain has never paid reparations to formerly enslaved people or their descendants. As a result, the legacy of the slave trade has helped to codify a racial hierarchy in the country. So what does this have to do with the queen? Well, for starters, the royal family has made its fortune from the slave trade. It started when Queen Elizabeth I allowed John Hopkins to kidnap slaves from Africa to sell to the Caribbean, making tremendous profits. Then a, the death of Queen Elizabeth II sparked renewed calls for reparations as King Charles become the new monarch. Read the entire article. It is, it is solid. It follows the things like uh, when England was an empire stealing the treasures, uh, the pharaohs uh, or uh, treasures from all over, from Nigeria, etc. Putting it in their museums. And now these folks want their stuff back. And too often they refuse. So let's, let's be careful. Let's be cognizant. Let's be measured, but this saturation of adoration for the monarchy, for Queen Elizabeth too, for those of us who have lived under this empire, whether you be in the Caribbean, wherever you are, let's not give undue credit where it's not at all due. Let's go ahead and mourn uh, the lady, the, the, the nominal queen of England, and then to hell, get rid of it. No bloodline, because a bloodline should inherently have dominion over anything. We should be worth what we work for. We should be worth what we decided to adapt to our intellect for. But to just have 24 coverage of a queen's death and you ask what's the purpose of the queen is she making lives better for anybody else 
But you have coverage like this. A semblance of reality creeps into the minds of those who are looking at these channels as if this is how they are informed. Let's really be informed. They are proven. They're poor informers. Absolutely so. So, yeah, that, uh, Allison did a, a good one. But the other one is the one that I have for today. The, uh, by by uh, Brett Wilkins, title of his article. And let me put that one on the screen. And by the way, folks, please subscribe to Medium. If you subscribe to Medium to that link that I'm putting in there right now. Uh, if you subscribe to Medium, it's very inexpensive. And you can read all of my articles without advertising at Medium and all the thousands of other writers. You can select a group of writers that you like. I have a group of writers that I like to follow at Medium. And it is wonderful, wonderful the amount of writers that you can go. Thank you for subscribing, Bridge MCP. But that is something you're not just reading my articles. You're supporting, you're, you're, you're helping to support me by supporting everybody else. So I just gave you my link, which, you know, it's my, you get membership through my link. Um, but uh, what that does is it, again, it, you have this body of writers and you don't have to simply tolerate the crap you see on mainstream media, the New York Times, the uh, Washington Post, you get viewpoints from other folks that will never, ever get an opportunity to make it on the New York Times or, the, or Washington Post because their, their point of view, just nobody wants to, it doesn't fall within those two rails. So therefore, you know what happens. They don't get the coverage. So please, folks, go to that link that I just put in there, the uh, politics, oh, that, it's not a politics and right link, it is a... Uh, mediumegberto.com slash it's right it is medium.egbertowillies.com slash membership medium.egbertowillies.com slash membership but this person wrote after queen's death victims of british imperialism share why we will not mourn and he starts the article this way we do not mourn the death of elizabeth because to us her death is a reminder of a very tragic period in this country and Africa's history, declared Julius Malerma, head of the left-wing Economic Freedom Fighters Party in South Africa. Elizabeth ascended to the throne in 1952, reigning for 70 years as a head of an institution built up, sustained, and living off of a brutal legacy of dehumanizing of millions of people across the world, he continued. During her 70-year reign as queen, she never once acknowledged the atrocities that her family inflicted on native people that Britain invaded across the world. Malema noted, she willingly benefited from the wealth that was attained from the exploitation and murder of millions of people. The British royal family stands on the shoulders of millions of slaves who were shipped away from the continent to serve the interests of racist white capital accumulation at the center of which lies the British royal family, Malena added. Larry Madowo, a CNN international correspondent, said during a Thursday broadcast that the fairy tale is that Queen Elizabeth went up to the treetops here in Kenya and princess and came down a queen because it's when she was here in Kenya that she learned that her dad had died and she was to be queen. But that also was the start of the eight years after that that the British colonial government cracked down brutally 
On the Mau Mau rebellion against the colonial administration, he continued, they herded more than a million people into concentration camps where they were tortured and dehumanized. And a lot of people would like us to forget what, what, the fam what that family meant to others. Not that beautiful, nice, she smiled and she touched, the, uh, she touched her head. She was so cool. Robert Davenport, welcome aboard, brother. He says, somebody lo loses a grandmother or a great-grandmother every day. This is no more sad. I agree, 100%. Uh, Lee Grant says, maybe we should nuke England to pay for all the crimes. No, maybe we should go and take, their, the, take all their assets and pay the, uh, how the assets were originally gotten. Maybe that's what we could do, right? So come on now. Egberto, after the show, I'd like you to check this out. Thank you, Redden. You always have some very good, interesting things for me to, to, to look at and also learn from. All of you do. All of you do. Uh, but Redden is a prolific researcher. Um, and Bridge as well. But Bridge is a professor, so we expect that out of Bridge. Uh, Maywood, hello, Lee Grant. Let me see. Is there, if there's anybody that I forgot to salute, call out, or whatever, let me know. Robert Davenport says, Egberto, you are spreading the truth. Uh, to the right-wingers love fantasies. That is absolutely so. But again, folks, I don't look. I, I think, you know, the, the, the important thing, the important thing that's missing, and I got to get out of here, it's 4 o'clock. The important thing that's missing is what, uh, what Mr., uh, uh, Mr., what's his name, Malema said. Not once. She was on the throne for 70 years. Not once did she apologize for the massacres that occurred under her family's name. Not once did she say, I'm sorry. Not once did she say, we should for find some form of reparation. Not once. So when you're expecting everybody to have that nice, soft, and cushy feeling for a royal that passes away and tries to give her a big send-off, that is like asking somebody who stabbed you to get off and have a nice word for you. I don't think so. My name is Egberto. First of all, please, folks, support the program however you can. The all-encompassing uh, support link is at politicsdoneright.com slash support. Politicsdoneright.com slash support. Thank you so kindly. Well, Bree says, thanks, Egberto. Willis, for a good show, and thank you guys for a great chat. We have the most wonderful family here. All of you. Those that agree, disagree, whatever. Please keep coming. Please remember to tell others about the program. Let's keep sharing intelligence. My name is a persuasive barrier. Welcome to Politics Done Right. They like rewriting narratives and history that comes with winning in recent years. Nanette Birdsmith says, thanks, Egberto. Thank you all. It's about thank you all. Thank you so kindly, all of you, for being a part of Politics Done Right. My name is Egberto Willies. This is Politics Done Right, and you guys know how I end this. Baby, I am what? Out! We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.